the uh, kids can be dismissed for their class. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking this morning, you may have heard a Picardy third, you may have heard a deceptive cadence, but I hope what you heard is a man who has a heart for the Lord and just who has lived a life studying God's word and taking God at his word and seeing that God can be trusted to fulfill his promises, that he is faithful, and that, uh, that there is nothing greater than serving him. Well, today, um, I'm taking a little departure from our study through the book of Matthew. As a, as a church, we've been walking through a, a catechism on Sunday mornings as part of our service, and as, as we've been moving through, we're coming to a section, and last week's catechism question was, what is what? Anyone remember? The preface to what? To the Ten Commandments. It comes directly from Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn there, today it is a little bit more topical, but what I want to lay is a little bit of a foundation, because Every Christian has asked this question. What does the Old Testament apply to me? Specifically, what does the law apply to me? We, we have the Old and the New Testaments, and therefore, what does the, the Old Testament, what does the law, but even more specific, what do the Ten Commandments have to do with me? Again, my desire is to lay a bit of a foundation that as the gentlemen speak on the topics of the Ten Commandments, we've understood a little bit of where we're headed. I find it odd that as we see much debate about the Ten Commandments in America and whether they should be on public buildings or something, but... We see often people fighting so greatly, but it's those same people who say they don't apply to us. Well, we live in a day of grace. We live under Jesus' grace. We don't live by the law anymore, but then why do we fight for the Ten Commandments? Albert Moeller said it a little differently, and I'm sure a lot better. He said, I find it rather perplexing that many of those who seem most... Uh, ardently committed to the posting of the Ten Commandments, can neither recite them nor honestly affirm them that they have taught them to their own children. And often we think when we hear the last name law is that's our pastor, right? Sorry, I couldn't help but to throw that joke in today. But when we think of the law and the Ten Commandments, often it is thought of something that is greatly negative. That it is something that 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 is for those people who are legalistic or trying to do a works-based salvation and, and the, the law is bad. And I, I, I didn't plan on it, but as I just started my study on this, I realized how much the Bible speaks about the law being a wonderful thing. That it is an amazing thing. And, and you think of the book of Romans being the book that We are saved by grace through faith. And yet, that is where I found most of the references to the beauty of the law. 
As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. In the Greek, that is one of the strongest ways that you can say, may it never be. He says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8. Now we know that the law is what? What? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So he puts a little, uh, a little parenthetical statement there. But Romans chapter 7 verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and what? Good. Psalm 1. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2. But his delight is on what? The law of the Lord. And on, he, on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Paul echoes these words in Romans 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. If you just open up a concordance and look up law, commandment, testimony, and begin to just read through, you begin to see that it often has a greater picture of the beauty of the law than we ever think. And we must understand that the law of God is not a bad thing. It is a beautiful thing. Yes, it can be greatly distorted. And yes, we must deal with it very carefully. But it is a beautiful thing that which God has given it to us. Imagine in a country where there is no law. What is there? Yeah. Anarchy. But God in his grace gave a law. And there, as we've walked through Matthew, we've seen when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. We studied and we saw that, that there is somewhat of a distinction to maybe some, some sections of the law. Certain things that don't carry over into a context under Christ. We no longer have a ceremonial law in which the, the nation of Israel was given because Christ, as Hebrews says, he was the sacrifice once and for all. The civil or the judicial law is unique to Israel because we see the picture that even in the Old Testament, those who are outside of Israel were not expected to uphold it. But what is eternally binding, and as we've seen multiple times, is the moral law of God. But what does this look like? For Jesus fulfilled it, but not abolished it. In Matthew 5, he says, And not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. And he curses anyone who loosens it. I want us to look at three uses of the law. The three uses of the law. What are we to do with the law of God? What, what, what work does it do for us? First of all, the law reflects what is holy. The law reflects what is perfect. It was several months ago when Dr. Mays 
contacted Pastor Marcus and I, and we began to kind of put this morning together, uh, we realized that we were coming to this point in the catechism and just wanted some clarification. And then we were thinking, hey, what a great time on the 9 o'clock hour for Pastor Marcus to share about why we structure our service the way we do. And uh, I encourage you, stop by the sound booth afterwards, pick up the CD from the 9 o'clock hour if you weren't here. It was a great uh, biblical understanding of why do we order our service the way we do. But what, one of the things that Pastor Marcus was pointing out, that first we start with God. God is where it begins. And because we see who God is, then we see who we are. And that's exactly the use of the law. The law revolt, re, reveals who God is and all of his beauty, all of his majesty, all of his perfection. And in doing so, it reveals how we don't measure up, how we fall short. It shows, as Romans 7, 7, Paul writes, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law sets a standard, and the breaking of that standard is sin is to err, just like a speed limit. It's been set, and therefore we know what sin is. But we see, as Paul says in Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but there is no law, excuse me, there is no law, Where there is no transgression. Excuse me, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You know, what's interesting is you look at the Apostle Paul's beginning. He says in Romans 1, everyone knows that there is a God. Some have just suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 2 says, we are so wicked, we can't set a standard upon what is righteous and what is holy. Therefore, God has given us the law to show our own sin. We must turn to his word and his word alone. As we see in our society, we we live in a relativistic age where we think, well, I'm good compared to this person. But God has laid down the absolute moral standard for us to understand that we can't be good enough. As Augustine in, I think, the 4th century said, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law leaves us where we have nothing. You think about the Pharisees and all the things, the man-made laws they added. It left them at a place of impossibility. They couldn't do it. But that's the point of the law. We can't do it. The law has another use. It's the, the second use would be it restrains what is evil. It restrains what is evil. This would be the application to a society. The, the law of God is a blessing in a nation because it shows what is right and what is wrong. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 say, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and it continues on. The law of God is a guideline for morality, not for salvation, but for morality. We see as God institutes governing authorities that that they are to use his law to determine what is right and what is wrong. As nations obey God's law, we see blessing in those nations. And as when they turn from it, we see the turning of God's blessing. Please understand, that is not salvific. It is a beauty of just God's provision of grace in this world. And even the limits of the judicial system in this world show us that we need a better judicial system. That it is not perfect. As much as we uh, try to attain perfect justice in America, it isn't. But it shows the greater need for the perfect and righteous and holy judge. Number three, the law reveals what is pleasing. The law leaves us utterly helpless. It creates a moral standard for a society. But for those who have been regenerated, it is a protection. It is a boundary by which to live by. Not to attain grace. Not to attain mercy. But to find blessing in obedience. What are Jesus' own words in John fourteen fifteen? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus showed that the the law was far greater than what any people thought. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. We understand that they thought it was just these externals, but Jesus is saying, No, it's all the way to the internal. 1 John echoes those words in John 14, in John, 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. But often we live as though the Word of God, the command of God, really doesn't have to have a bearing on our life. But that is not what the Scriptures teach us. Matthew 28, we see Jesus' ascension into heaven. And as he does that, he gives the Great Commission. And within the Great Commission, he says, you know, go therefore, baptize, making disciples of all nations. But verse, excuse me, verse uh, 20, he says, teaching them to what? To what? To observe all that I have commanded. There is a role in the the obedience and walking in obedience. It is not, again, it does not save us. The law condemns, but the law obeying is a following into the Lord's ways. The psalmist in Psalm 119 and also in in 19 show the beauty of it. But in Psalm 119.35, psalmist writes, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 19.11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. What a great blessing it is that when we stand under the grace of God, we can pursue to walk in His ways, to walk in what we know pleases Him. 
And we know what pleases him by how he has given us his word. We don't have to wonder what it is. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. What was written in former days to the Apostle Paul? Yeah, the Old Testament. It was written for their instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Often these are not the things that we think about when we think about the law. We think about it being an evil thing. But it is a gracious gift of the law. But maybe more applicable to our, our time and as we move forward in the, the looking at the Ten Commandments, but what is the application of the law? What, how do we bring it to ourselves? How are we to understand how it directly applies to us? How many of the... How many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? Just seeing if you're awake. There's ten. Eh? I sometimes wonder if that's why God gave us ten fingers or something. But, but in the New Testament, we see Jesus is asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? And knowing what they were thinking, trying to trap him, he says, well... The greatest commandment is you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And while, while I'm at it, I'll give you a second one, is to love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting is you look at those two things, you understand that those are paralleling what are called the two tables of the law. The first four commandments are how we are to respond toward God. Make sure I get my math right. Five through ten are how we are to apply it to people. And so we see Jesus is actually summarizing all the law, pulling out the two tables of the law and saying, if you want it summarized, here's the two tables of the law. When we understand that the Ten Commandments in the end are actually a summary of the entire law. Did God only give the nation of Israel ten laws? Think about it. No. So why would he put 10 on stone tablets for them? But then he gave them lots of others. It's because these 10 are a representation of the others. They are a picture. They are a summary. And Paul kind of echoes these words in Romans 13 when he summarizes most of the second table of the law in Romans 13.9. He says, For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see the Apostle Paul is grouping them together. And as we look at the Ten Commandments over the coming weeks, some of the catechism questions, they tend to go in this order. What is the commandment? What is required? What is forbidden? And maybe a reason or a clarification. Because as we understand that they are a summary, we'll begin to understand why the catechism answers it the way it does. And I want to show this in the first commandment. Question number 50, and answer it with me. What is the first commandment? Which is the first commandment? Answer it. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in our text, I had you turn to 
Exodus chapter 20. Verses 2 and 3 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is the preface. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, we need to make sure that any catechism question, any doctrinal statement comes directly from the word of God. And so we see here. But there's also some follow-up questions. Again, what is commanded and what is rejected or what is prohibited? But I want to show under this idea of the application of the law three, three different things that we're going to see the application of the law. And I tried to summarize them, and I hope I didn't summarize them so short that it loses the, the gist of it. But first of all, the inverse is commanded or forbidden. If something is commanded, the inverse is prohibited. If something is prohibited, the inverse is commanded. Do you follow that? Follow that? Yes, we need to be careful on this principle. But we must allow the whole counsel of Scripture to guide us. For instance, the Eighth Commandment. What is it? It'd be good to kind of refresh on these. Thou shalt not steal. So we see in Ephesians 4 the application of this. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. God says don't steal, but by inference, he's commanding us to work. See where that works? We see it directly applied by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4. When God commands us not to do something, he's also commanding us the inference to do something on the opposite. So the opposite or the, what was the term I used? The inverse is commanded or forbidden. But secondly, the same kind is also included. That often, again, we, we understand that the Ten Commandments are not just ten strict commandments, but they're pictures of their summaries. So the things that fall under that category are included in that. Again, we, we see the Fifth Commandment, to honor thy father and mother. In, reference, or in inference to that, God is, God is saying that we are to honor all authority. So you'll see when we get to the catechism question, what is commanded and what is forbidden, we'll see the answer that actually points that we're to submit to all authority. I was thinking about why did God choose, and I don't want to ask, I don't want to say that I know, but I was thinking of what might have been a reason why God would have used that in the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother. Which is easier, to obey a police officer or to obey your parents? I don't know about you, but growing up, it was easier to obey all other kinds of authority. But my parents, that was the harder one. It was day in and day out. It revealed my heart. And such it is with the Word of God, how it points us directly to where we struggle the most. But when we look at the Ten Commandments, we have to understand that when God is commanding one thing, He's including the things that fall under that same category. 
when Jesus spoke on adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, what's he include in adultery? Our thinking. He's showing the application of that all the way into our thinking. And so we must be aware that the Ten Commandments are are not just little things that we can say, oh, I checked that box. I, I did just this, keeping literally the letter of the law. But as Christ has shown us throughout the whole book of Matthew, the law is far much broader than we ever anticipated. So look at question number 51 on the screen behind me. What is required in the first commandment? Now stop. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Now that's a negative statement. That's actually a forbidding. What's actually commanded in there? Look at it on the screen. Answer it with me. The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Do we see that directly in that text? Be honest. No. But again, we have to go back to the understanding that the Ten Commandments are a summary. That these things are true. That the opposite is to be commanded or forbidden. They help us to understand, to see the breadth of the commandments. We see this truth that we are to glorify God as the one and only true God. Even Jesus in his own words, uh, in his temptation with Satan in Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's interesting, Dr. Mays mentioned 1 Samuel 7. In 1 Samuel 7, 3, Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If God is the only true God, if he is our God, then we are to acknowledge only him as God. But as the First commandment, by inference, requires us something. It directly forbids us something. In question 52, what is forbidden in the first commandment? Answer it with me. The first commandment forbids us to deny or not to worship and glorify the true God as God and our God and to give him worship and glory to another which is due to him alone. We see that very directly applied in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We're not to deny the worship that God is due. For he is God. As Isaiah, I think, 46 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. But then question 53 brings us to a point where it asks a little clarification question. It asks, what are we especially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? Answer it with me. These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God, who sees all things, takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. 
You know, what's interesting is if you're looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the ESV says you shall have no other gods before, and it has a textual note. And it, also, it says it could also be translated beside me. The Hebrew word here for before literally means before the face of. It's not this idea of, okay, we line up all these things and God's just at the front of the list. This idea is to stand before. 1 Samuel 3 says Samuel ministered before the, excuse me, ministered to the Lord before the face of Eli. He did it in his presence. And this is what the, the first commandment is speaking about. And often we, we put it in these lists. And yes, is God supposed to be what's most important? Absolutely. But the commandment is showing that before God, there is nothing but him. That there is to be nothing else. We're not even to have anything even on the radar. We understand that the before me is probably the most literal translation. But because we understand before as maybe being a series of things, it can be a little confusing to us in our English translations. But God sees all Everything is before his face, for he knows all things, doesn't he? Nothing can be hidden from his sight. Psalm 44, verse 20 says, If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. You see where this first commandment is far greater than sometimes we think of it? That God is to be in a place that there isn't even another. There's not even a second place in the picture. That the priority of God, because he is God. But often we bring him down to this level that we think he's just three quarters of an inch greater than us. But as we understand the word of God and the breadth of it, we see how amazing it is because it reveals us who he is. Let her see in that the application, how do we apply it? Let her see ourselves are required and we're to encourage others to do it. There's a duty when we know what's right to do to do it ourselves. As Paul says, you know what, if we if we know what we ought to do and we do not do it, it is what? Sin. But there's also a moral obligation for us to encourage others. And to encourage others, or not to be encouraging people to stumble into it. Psalm 119, 4 and 5 says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. 1 Corinthians 8, 13, we see the application of that we're to encourage others not to. It says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. We're not to be putting other people in a situation to fall into temptation. There's a duty upon ourselves' obedience and to encourage others to obey it. Now again, these are very, very quickly some principles. But where I want us to just be reminded as we close, what is the purpose of the law? 
It's to leave us entirely lost without hope. That's its job. Galatians 3, verses 21 and 22 says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law condemns. The law does not save. The law leaves us utterly hopeless and saying, I need a savior. John Bunyan so well put it. He says, the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin. And he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior. The law leaves us utterly hopeless in need of a Savior to save us. But that is where Christ comes in. For in Matthew 5, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. There is one man who walked the face of this earth who kept the law completely, and that is Christ himself. And because of that, because of his active and his passive obedience, he has fulfilled the law, giving us forgiveness through repentance and faith. As we look at the Ten Commandments, they are to leave us utterly hopeless. They're to be a guide, but they're to be a constant reminder that we can't save ourselves. As we've seen kind of this morning, as we're reminded of Luther saying, you know what, the just shall live by faith. We understand that there is no hope in ourselves. Therefore, he is our salvation. For he is the perfect one who perfectly obeyed the law, fulfilled it that we might receive his righteousness imputed, put on our behalf, put on our account as we stand before our great judge when our lives are taken or he returns. But the question is, so we can try to ignore the law and think we're okay, but it's like that duck who has his head in the sand thinking the, the hurricane's not coming by. Just because we're trying to ignore it does not change the fact that it exists. And so we understand that the law is good. God graciously gave it to us to show us that Christ would fulfill it. That as we understand that we are sinners, we cannot save ourselves. As we turn and repent of our sin and follow him, we find forgiveness in him alone. Have you done that? Have you turned? Have you realized that the law has left you hopeless and placed your trust and faith in Christ alone? I pray you have. Let's pray. Father.